Welcome to Mentors on the Mic podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Simone Miller, a New York City native actress with credits in film, television, off-Broadway, and commercials. Every Monday, I'll bring you an incredible mentor in the entertainment industry, focusing on how they started and how they moved up to where they are today. My goal is to encourage you to follow your dreams and give you a playbook on how to get there. Thanks for listening and let the episode begin. Happy Mentor Monday, everyone. We have a very special guest, Jenny Halper, who is the Executive Vice President at Maven Screen Media. So we talk about what does that mean, what the roles and responsibilities are, and where where does she fit in in the, in the sense of in the development of a project. So what, her, what she does, what she looks for, the criteria she looks for in a given project, how she helps attach financing, how she helps attach either major or stars or a director and she has been a part of in different ways right through mandalay vision through another production put through maven right now um she's been involved with in many different films with incredible people everything from the kids are all right starring in it benning julianne moore mark ruffalo to the whistleblower starring rachel vice the resident hillary swank and jeffrey dean morgan we have bernie jack black shirley mclean matthew mcconaughey all the way to the kindergarten teacher with maggie gyllenhaal and now a mouthful of air with amanda seyfried finn Wittrock, paul giamatti where she's the executive producer and you might have heard heard a little bit about Maven in our previous episodes with Amy Koppelman, who is the director and writer of A Mouthful of Air, as well as Mike Harrop, who also was a producer. So really kept it in the family here. I really wanted to hear about this particular film, really, through all these different perspectives. And Amy Koppelman was nice enough to recommend Jenny. She is so wonderful. I learned so much about the business, about, uh, you know, like I said, attaching people to specific projects, how to develop project. She even had great advice for actors uh, listening in. So without further ado, here's Jenny Halper. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. And I always like to ask, what was your first role in the entertainment industry? So my first role was really, I, I would say that I was an entertainment journalist, but I say journalist with sort of very big quotes. Like lightly. Um, yeah, I mean, I was I was writing film reviews for a lot of websites. I started in college and I did that mm-hmm. through graduate school. And then like right after college, I did this AmeriCorps program called Avoda in Washington, D.C. And so I got really involved in the like the entertainment journalism scene there. I got to interview a lot of really cool people like Josh Marston, John Irving, huge writer. Yes, yeah. Cider House Rules. So I got to so I was in D.C. and it was a really small scene. And I was pretty young and I got to, you know, I got to interview Josh Marston and John Irving and people like that in really small settings. And I loved it. And I thought that was what I wanted to do. And so I did that for a couple of years while also taking a couple other jobs to pay the rent, but ultimately felt like when I went to, I went to grad school in Boston, I went to Emerson yeah. and I was finding that journalism was really becoming sort of a blogosphere and the interview access wasn't as good as it used to be. And yeah. the jobs really wanted to pay me decent money were wanting me to sort of do more sort of spe- like human in- like journal like people magazine type stuff yeah which like, is it like has, entertainment it gossip type things but I was really really interested in how movies got made what the directing process was and the screenwriting process was and how movies got put together and I had loved getting to learn that through doing all of these interviews like talking to John Irving about 
the adaptation of widow for a year into the door in the floor and hearing what that process was like and hearing how Josh Marston like came up, came up for the, came up for the, with the idea for Maria full of grace and found mm. Catalina Santino Moreno. Like all of that stuff was, I mean, I've, I've been obsessed with movies since I was four years old, but getting a window into that process and getting to really see and learn about how, like learn about how they got made. It was sort of my film school in a way, but I didn't want to do the other stuff. And so I went to Emerson for my master's and did my last semester in LA and mm. thought I would, you know, intern at a newspaper there. Cause I'd already been, you know, publishing a fair amount for sort of like places like AM New York and places like that. Mm. And, um, Oh, I remember AM this, New York. Yeah, AM New York. And the I did a lot for the Boston Phoenix too. And nice. I was so sad when they closed. I got to, to, yeah, just getting to see movies and write about them. I was like, I, can I actually do this with my life? Then when I was at Emerson, when I went to LA, I was like, well, why don't I see what it's like to actually work for a film company? Yeah. So I interned at a bunch of different places. And one of them was a company called Pretty Pictures that was run by Gail Mutrick, who's produced like Donnie Brasco and Kinsey, two of my favorite movies. She was like, she started out on Homicide Life in the Street and Rain Man and getting to see how she worked. And then I also interned at Denver and Delilah Productions, Charlize Theron's company. Yeah. Um, And I interned at, I interned for a producer named Bly Faust um, and her partner, Nicole Rockland, who went on to make Spotlight. And they were really great mentors. Getting to like, getting to have a, like, even though I was an intern to have some sort of like have an opinion internally on what was actually made that was sort of a big pivot point for me. So I moved back to New York. This is a very long answer, but no, I moved you're fine. To New York from LA. I didn't knew I didn't want to live in LA, but just reached out with, I think it was largely Bly who helped me every company in, in New York that was making movies I liked. And I yeah. had a long list of companies that were making movies that I liked because I'd been seeing every single indie ever made. And one of those companies was Plum Pictures, which Celine Retray, who runs Maven, where I work now, was a principal. And then there were two other companies I worked at too. I turned at three companies for one year. And then Celine was hired by Mandalay to run their mm. New York office and brought me on, which is a long way of saying my first job was really as a journalist in quotes, because mm-hmm. I was not doing any sort of hard news journalism by any stretch of the imagination. And then my first real job was working for Celine Retray, who runs the company I work at now. Um, at a company called Mandalay Vision. Excellent. Uh, well, as like a junior development executive. So, well, the internships are great because I was going to ask you about those. I think those are imperative in order for you to get the position that you got right at Mandalay. So what was your first role at Mandalay? It was really as a, you know, junior development executive. So in, in, in a lot of ways, it was similar to what I do now, but I was doing like earlier career stuff. Mm. So I was reading scripts. I was, I was telling my boss what she should really pay attention to. I was working directly with the writers to give script notes, which is something wow. I found I really loved. I was doing a lot of like talent lists of, you know, directors for if we were packaging a project, putting, putting a director and an actor on it before raising the financing. Right. I was doing a lot of, doing, doing a lot of that, doing a lot of, we have this script, how do we make it as good as possible? And how do we find the pieces of the puzzle to get it made? Which is somewhat similar to what I'm doing now, actually have a lot more experience in doing it. Oftentimes I'll be working on projects that just start with an article or something like that. And then Mm. I I did discover that a lot of, a lot of the job is making connections because 
to get a movie made, you need, there are so many different stumbling blocks along the way. And a lot of it is who you know and who you can get into the hands of that's going to help you reach that next hurdle. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot more of my job now is meeting people and trying to expand my network while continuing to read the influx of material while working with directors through production if we're filming something. But it's still a lot. How do you find great content and how do you make it the best so that it can be? And how do you put it together in a way that's going to be the best that it can be? Does that make sense? It does really make sense. And and I like the fact that it hasn't changed so much, except for the fact that it's more of it, you said, and like more connecting and more networking, and then obviously more experience. You probably just, mm-hmm. a lot of it's like, okay, I know exactly what to do as opposed to then where it was like, you're learning. How big was the team when you first joined? When I first joined, it was really tiny. I mean, it was really four people at first three. And actually then a lot of my job also is managing the interns, which I would say I did for five or six years. Yeah. And I have a coordinator now who's taken over that part of my responsibility. Right. But a lot of, a lot of it was, was that as well, which is another part of how do you find great material? And they're the first readers and really trying to assess who is the best person to cover what, what script and who are the best people to actually be our for handling our first reads and, and working with them and trying to mentor them as well. Yeah, no, that's yeah. it. And then what attracted you to Mandalay specifically? Cause I know you said that you were looking for a specific, like specific film specific that you loved and then who developed those, which is brilliant. So like what exactly, and what did Mandalay do that where you were like, I, that that'd be a good fit for me. Something I had found when I was, again, I say a critic, which is in, and I say that in quotes, even though you can't see because it's a podcast, because I was just very young and inexperienced when, inexperienced when I was doing it. But something I became glaringly clear to me was women's roles in movies were not nearly as large or as dynamic as men. Mm-hmm. The actresses who I had watched growing up were no longer getting roles and the actors were female directors who were making great movies were not getting a shot at their second films to the degree that a lot of men were. And there was just huge gender inequality in the film industry. That was something that just became so, and I would get very frustrated about it because I would see, like, I remember one of the first movies I saw was this movie called The Woodsman by Nicole Cassell. And I loved it. And I remember then by the time I started working for Maven, I was for what was called Mandalay then. And then we switched over to Maven, yeah. which I'll tell you about. Yeah. I did not understand why she hadn't made another movie. And then there's this other movie I'd seen and done interviews for called Cherry Baby, written and directed by Lori Collier, who I'm working, actually working on a project with now and who's become a friend. But I just thought that movie was so incredible. And I was like, where's the next one? Where's the next one? Yeah. And in comparison with like male filmmakers, I feel like if you have one big hit, you'll be given a huge commercial film right after. Even a small hit, right? Yeah. So, and then when I was in grad school, with a small group of women had formed this organization called the Alliance of Women Film Journalists to really look at that. I'm not, I'm, and I'm still a member, although not as active as I want to be or should be, but it's, it's sort of it's a lot going on. Yeah. So when I was looking at companies and this is, I did this also when I was looking for internships in LA and it's something I really, I talk about to our interns a lot when they ask is I really only looked at places that were making movies that I loved. Yeah. And so that was one thing and make it or and telling stories that I was really interested in. I think I had reached out about Plum Pictures, which is where Celine worked, because I really like this movie, Grace is Gone. And then I saw they were doing the Bell Jar, and I didn't know how anybody would make a movie of the Bell Jar. Yeah. And I really loved that book and I was fascinated. And so that was my reason for reaching out to Plum. And and I think at that point they were 
that the movie still hasn't gotten made, but they got they got very close. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, Nicole Cassell, who directed The Woodsman at one point, was attached to direct it. Ooh. It never got made. It never got made, but, but still, you know, that happens all the time. They were making movies I was interested in, and it was three women running that company. I just was like that. That would be a really great place to learn. I also really like the idea of working for little companies because you get to know people mm-hmm. and you get to have a lot more hands-on experience, which has right. always been the case. I will say one of my regrets, not that that was the question, yeah. but one of my regrets is not ever working at a variety of places because every company I've worked at has been tiny under five people mm-hmm. for the most part. And now we have a few more at Maven. I, now we have a few more at Maven, but it's, it's, I've never worked for sort of a big, in a big corporate setting. A part of me wishes I had that experience. So I understood more about how that functioned. But at the time I remember one company that I almost interned for in LA and I decided not to, and it's a big regret Mm. was I just felt like it was going to be too big and I would get lost. To answer your question in a more direct way, what drew me to Plum initially, and then that turned into the Mandalay job, which turned into the Maven job is they were telling stories that I thought were super interesting and I really liked. And also there was a sort of female forward focus that I thought was really important. And just to clarify, when you applied to Plum, did you get the job there? Did you get the internship there? Or did Celine just then hire you for for Mandalay? I got the job at Plum through one of like my earliest mentors who has remained a very good friend. And she is a woman named Joy Goodwin. And she was running development at Plum at that time. I think I cold emailed her. Nice. Um, And she was about to go on maternity leave and she needed some help. And I interviewed with her and we got on great She's also a, a really talented writer. She just had one of her screenplays in, in indie film. Yeah. So I got, I got brought on by her and then I ended up being in the office a lot, which was a tiny office. And at that point they were making production of the kids are all right, but it was sort of leading up to pre-production of mm. kids are all right. So I got to see that process and be a part of that process, which was amazing. Cause I loved Lisa Trilodenko's work. I had seen High Art and Laurel Canyon and loved, loved, loved those movies. So to get to see like how that script developed and even send my notes on it to Celine, like was such a cool thing. And then it was Annette Benning and Julianne Moore who were like two actors and just getting to be a part of that process. That was the first rough cut I ever saw, Mm. which was a really cool experience to be like, oh, wait, now I see like get just really getting to see the different steps of the process in a super granular way was so cool. Love it. I'm going to ask you so much about process, I feel like, but I might as well just continue. Now we're at Mandalay. And then when does that become Maven? It became Maven in 2011. I think Celine had Celine, who runs the company, had met Trudy Styler, and they felt a really great creative synergy and started working together. Mm. And so everybody, the the team at Maven was four people, including Celine, and we bumped over there, and then ended up hiring, bringing on one more one more person. In this type of world. Is it one of those, because you you kind of said before you took on a lot of tasks, obviously if it's a smaller team, you're taking on a lot, right? Are titles kind of super flexible, not random, but just, I mean, are you kind of given titles that like accurately match what you do because you probably did so much. And so it's one of those like, yeah, let's just call her this, you know, or is it I mean, I think what I was doing was really being a development executive. I don't think I was doing, like, sometimes I would help coordinate things. I would help my colleague Nick coordinate things, but she was doing all of that really. 
And I actually kind of quite liked that because there was a clear beginning, middle and an end to, mm. to the coordinating where with development, it's like, you can just, it can be endless. Yeah. But I was really, I was given the opportunity then to start finding projects of my own. And that was really cool. So it wasn't just reading what Celine asked me to read. And I would say that's probably also the biggest difference of how you grow and change is a lot of the projects that I'm working on at Maven, I have 18 projects at different yeah. stages a big chunk of those are ones that I found or, you know, and that's part of my job is not just assessing what comes in, but it's bringing things in. Excellent. I really was assessing material. That's what I was really doing. And was it very fluid during that sort of, in sort of that time period or did like, how did you start sort of developing or finding your own work and then being like, okay, now we're going to take this on. And when were you given sort of that responsibility to now find your own stuff? It was super, it was pretty fluid. I would get a script from a friend and be like, hey, this is really great. Or there was a the novel that I had read in grad school that was my favorite novel. Mm. And I found out that the rights were available. So yeah. we were trying to adapt it into a mini series, getting to do that. when the, And it, it got close and then never really came to fruition. And so- Again, let's, let's sort of break it down now. Let me ask, what are some things that you look for particular project? That's a really good question. I look for a story that feels like it needs to be a movie or a TV show. Cause now we're doing TV, like tons of great stories out there, but why does it need to be told in a way that's, why does it need to be told in this visual medium? And some of the things like the two things, what I think is so amazing about movies and TV is they're both so vast and also so intimate. Yeah. And it's such an incredible form in that way. So it's like, is it a really great world that you can, that like a viewer can get really immersed into? Are you walking in some of these shoes that you wouldn't necessarily have the opportunity to get to experience? Is it a story that is going to make people really think about something that's going on in the world right now, but also be entertaining? I, I mean, I would always say that I was, what I was trying to find were movies that had like the specificity and character depth of indie films, mm. but that you could, that bigger, that would get a bigger audience than that. So I would always point at, I would point at sort of a wide range of movies, super commercial movies like Jurassic Park and Bridesmaids that are about super interesting themes. Can you play God? What happens when your friendships change? Right. Yeah. But also about those in super, in, in super unique and entertaining ways. Like that's, I mean, that's sort of what we're striving for. And it's, it's a, pro, it's, it's hard to find those things. Yeah. But also stories that just seemed really different and unique. I mean, we made this movie in, that came out in 2018 called The Kindergarten Teacher that I, Maggie I Gyllenhaal. working on. And I remember the feeling of reading that script and having seen the director, Sarah Colangelo's first movie and thinking that she had such a, such a special voice and and I thinking that there was nobody other than Maggie that should ever play that role and thinking that it it was about society expected of people and how that could make them go a little bit nuts in a way I'd never seen before and it was about society's values and how they were shaping like shaping us right in some ways it was like a thriller about that and so it's like well how that how do you then sell it get everybody excited about a movie that could you could look at and say this is about a poetry poetry teacher who's a little bit creepy right but it, to me, it, it just was so clear, even when I'd only read 20 pages, that it was just such a compelling story with such a a compelling protagonist. And then by the time I got to the end, it was a ride I'd never gone on before. So I love that movie. And I mm-hmm. love being the smallest, seeing it and championing it, which is really yeah. what I did. When, we, when that came in, it was Sarah had adapted this fantastic Israeli film. We had the Israeli producers who were working with us, who were amazing. Maggie was attached and it was just like every day, how do I, 
we had to change things in the script to go along with the reduced budget. So how do you take characters out, but have it retain what you loved about it in the first place? How do you creatively support and be there to just make sure that every decision is going to lead you towards the best possible film? Whether it's getting the rights to a painting or getting Mm -hmm. the rights to a poem or getting the rights to a song and how do you fight for the things that are necessary and make compromises where when you just don't have the resources every day, just how to fight for the best movie and back down when something isn't that important. So I wish I, which goes back to like how we pick material. And for me, a lot of it is, do do I absolutely love the story? Is it really different? Does it have, I mean, for me still like having a really rich, complex character who's happens to be a woman in there. I mean, we did did a movie called Skin that my colleague Hardy had brought in that's based on a true story about a neo-Nazi who gets pulled out of the group that he's in. And that was brilliant male director, Israeli director, Guy Nativ, and Jamie Bell starred in it. And it was a very sort of masculine movie, but it was about how it is possible to get past the culture of hate in such a like gripping way. And also there were two characters in it, the woman leader of this neo-Nazi group and the girlfriend of the main character who were just incredibly fleshed out, unique woman that I'd never seen before. That was really Hardy's project that he pushed forward, but just getting to, it was like, okay, there's like the sort of Maven stamp on it. Hi, I'm Eric LaPointe, and if you are enjoying Mentors on the Mic, be sure to subscribe, comment, and share with others. And meanwhile, you might also enjoy my podcast, Global Vid, where I explore the business of original productions and its international potential. Every two weeks, we interview TV industry execs who coach us on how they have expanded beyond their domestic borders. Check out the Global Vid, that's V-I-D, podcast on your favorite app so that we can learn from each other and the experts within our field. A lot of them also have really fantastic actors attached. Mm -hmm. You know, we have uh, everyone from Rachel Weiss in The Whistleblower to The Resident with Hilary Swank and Jeffrey Dean Morgan and Bernie with Jack Black, Shirley MacLaine, and the list goes on and on. How often do these projects come to you already with these main stars attached? And how often do you have to go and now find these stars and attach them in order to make this happen? That's a really good question. A lot of projects do come to us with actors attached. Yeah. Then we have projects where we go out and attach actors. I haven't actually talked about a mouthful of air. Amy Amy Koppelman's movie, who I know is a guest also. So they had attached Amanda Seafried when we got the script. And that was another one where I, I just thought, you know, this is about postpartum in a way that I'd never really, I wasn't super familiar with it. And Celine was very familiar with it and was really captivated by the idea of making a movie about it. But the way that Amy had tackled both like an adaptation of her book and done it in such a, in such a sort of beautiful way and made it a different thing, which I think is part of your novelist, but also that she tackled postpartum through the lens of a woman who had a vivid imagination. So there was all this color and hope. And I thought that was so special. Amanda was so clearly so perfect for that part, but also had never done anything really like that. You just knew that the performance was going to be amazing. Mike Harrop and, and Amy had attached Amanda before it came to Maven. And then we do have projects where we get a script, develop it, attach an actor. Sometimes we'll find a novel and attach an actor and develop it with them. That process is getting more challenging than it used to be. Yeah, I think a lot of that is TV, premium TV is point all of the A-listers. So they are, it gets gets harder and we still do get in projects that are fully packaged that have an actor or two actors attached. And then it's part of the conversation is, is this full package something that we want to do? Right. 
I mean, we do both. We have projects with actors attached. We're finding directors on. We have projects with directors on. We're finding actors on. Trying to put together that package is always, in some ways, the most challenging, most exciting, but also the most frustrating part of the process. Yeah, interesting. The people that you want to get are really busy for a reason. I mean, I always liken getting a movie to the point where you can actually shoot it, where it's fully packaged and financed and all of that is like building a giant boulder out of like, you have to find all the materials and build this, build this boulder to make it like strong enough so you can roll it up the hill. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the top of the hill and like a gust of wind can hit it, which can be an actor, an actor's availability or a director gets a studio movie or a piece of financing falls or like, it can be anything. And yeah. then the boulder goes all the way down the hill and you have to start again. Which is yeah. why it makes sense that you have like 18 th- projects in different stages having to go on. Yeah. You can't have Some everything in one basket, yeah. but you can't have everything in one basket is the point. You have to work on so many things because some of those things are going to fall, you know, and you're going to have to figure out how to rebuild them, but at least you have more than more things going on. So some things get across the finish line, essentially is part of your responsibility or the collective responsibility at Maven to finance or find financing. How does that work usually? I'm not super involved in that. The Celine who runs the company has investors she's been working with for decades. We do finance movies. The the company finances movies. The company also will, we have a project with Fox Searchlight that they're financing. We have a project with Amazon that we're financing, that they're Mm. financing. So there's also the shift into, are we going to really be looking at a model where we're setting things up with third parties because there is just, it's a little bit less scrappy and a little bit more sustainable. So for example, like a mouthful of air. I mean, that wasn't attached to a bigger studio, right? So was that something no, you guys... No, that was Celine, yeah. And how often movie. does that change? Like you said, it, ch- it takes away some of the scrappiness of the film, but like how often does that change the dynamic in terms of being able to build it out or have creative liberty with it? I know Amy talked a lot about like how much, how much she fought for certain things and like all that, but it's probably much harder having a huge studio or Fox Searchlight attached to it because they're going to have way more control, obviously. So what's the experience like working with both maybe private investors and something much bigger like Fox Searchlight? It's interesting because with with a studio, there's, and, and I haven't had a ton of experience with this yet. Yeah. There's always a lot of cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. Even when yeah. a tiny team, there's still yeah. a lot of cooks trying to figure out like it's a collaborative process. It's like, I always liken it. It's so hard to make a great movie because if you can imagine how hard it is to make a great book, there's usually, there's one person who ultimately is the decision maker on that book. The editor has some, but but whatever, but with a movie, there's a lot of different people who have voices. If you have, if, if it's something that you're making in house, that's sort of the smaller scrappier version, you can have the freedom to say, we have the resources and we're going to go make the movie in three months. Mm. Whereas if it's a studio or a third party, they have to give you the green light. So there is some flexibility in saying like, actually, if we can pull together the pieces of the puzzle, we can make this in June versus saying, we hope we get the green light and we'll keep doing everything we can to get this green light. Oh, so then probably there's probably a, a good waiting period for that. You have to like talk to your creative team and just be like, you know, we're, we're just going to wait it out. We have to, we don't have a choice. Like we're just waiting for that green light. And a lot of that is what happens with the casting too, because if we're casting, if we're doing something internally and trying to cast it, the budget may change based on who we cast in those roles. And so sometimes you're waiting two months for an actor's answer and keeping the creative team excited and saying, look, we're, we're going to yeah. keep going on this path of we're going to wait for actress A and then we're going to go to actress B. And yeah, that's a long, frustrating process, but it's just sort of 
the way the industry is now. Yeah. I have a question that you feel free to not answer for whatever reason, if you don't want to, but I'm curious about for people who do want to get to a place where they're, they're doing exactly what you're doing. Do you get paid like a salary from Maven? Do you get equity in certain projects? Like how attached are you to the financial success of a film or how invested is Maven sometimes attached to the success? How does that work? I have a salary, but that's sort of, I'm just not as involved in the other stuff. It's something I should probably learn more about. Yeah. I'm always curious. I always feel like that's something I I feel like I I never have enough conversations about. So that's why I ask. I want to talk a little bit. We've talked about this before and you kind of mentioned it, but this idea of how much we can control. So what do you, what advice do you give to people who are also in the film industry who maybe sometimes have only one project, like their baby. And they're like, I'm trying to champion this. I'm trying to have other people believe in this as much as I do. What advice do you think you can give them, whether they're in it creatively or they're doing something similar to you that you feel like has worked for you in terms of the control you have over projects and and what can work and obviously fall through? I mean, people have said to me, and I think that this is good advice, you can only work on, just focus on what you have control over. Like you don't have control over it, whether an actor is going to attach to your script. You have control over whether or not you can make the offer, right? And how mm. you can make the offer and how you can follow up on the offer and how you can find ways to push it forward. But you don't ultimately have control over the outcome, right? So I would say it's important to, I find that this is hard for me to do. And it's something I'm sort of working on on a daily, weekly, yearly basis. How can I focus on the things that I'm going to have control on? And sometimes that means you have to have more than one project. So if I have one project that's in a really frustrating spot, I'm going to say, well, what can, A, is there anything I could do today to address this spot? And if the answer is no, then it's like, what else, can, what else do I have going on that I can actively say I can make a difference here? Yeah. Even if it's just a matter of you have a project you care so much about, but you're so burnt out because nobody looking at it. I mean, sometimes it's as, as simple as read a great book, go watch a movie that inspires you start a new thing. Because if it's a story you love and you want to keep pushing it forward, there's always a time and place. That's the thing that I think is great about creating is you can do it and no, nobody has to give you permission, especially if you're a writer, you can always do it, but you don't always, you can't always have control over whether or not somebody's going to make it. So just keep working on things you're excited about. Amazing. I love that. Thank you. And then in terms, again, kind of, we talked a little bit before as well, in terms of attaching a, is there a difference between having some sort of piece of work, whether let's say it's a screenplay of project and you have a director attached versus having a big actor attached? Is there a difference in how you're able to sell it? Depends on who the director is. Ultimately, you can't make a movie without the director anyway. So you can have a big actor and not get a director because the directors might be really busy. The directors, like sometimes a big actor will have a very short list of directors they want. Mm. So if you can't get one of those directors, you can't make the movie. That's fun. Well, because I was thinking in the case of. If you have a director who only wants one of five actors, you can't get one of those five actors. You can't make the movie. God, so true. Well, I was thinking also with the case of like Amy, for instance, she had Amanda attached for Mouthful of Air, but she couldn't get a director. Right. And she said she had like had all these meetings and uh, it was, it was very difficult. And then she's like, okay, I'm going to do it. So in that case, did she come to you after she decided to direct or before? After. Excellent. Excellent. Well, it's nice to see the championing of women here. I love yeah. it. And then anything you can tell us about upcoming projects that you're working on? I know there's a couple that's already sort of been announced on IMDb, essentially like courting danger looks really good only from the log line, but it still that's looks like really good. One that's one. I want to read the book now. I'm like, I saw that in the research. I was like, that looks good. 
the book is great. So that we developed as a feature and then realized there was too much in there for the feature. And it's Mm. about three-time world champion tennis player by the name of Alice Marble, who becomes a spy during the second world war. And it's also very much about this sort of this romance she has that is very much tied into why she becomes a spy. And then also her incredibly complicated relationship with her coach, who is this woman named Eleanor Teach Tennant, Eleanor Tennant, nicknamed Teach, who was coached to the stars like Charlie Chaplin. And she had all these all these incredible superstar proteges, but Alice was her like super, superstar. And they had, and she plucked her from obscurity and they had this very complicated, difficult relationship where her coach was her mother, her mentor, her disciplinarian, but also tried to really shape her life and mm. stop doing anything that um, interfered with tennis. And that sort of relationship of like, I owe this person everything, but they're also driving. They're also not letting unhealthy a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So we're trying to do that now as a limited series because there's just so much story. And that was a book that was given to me by a woman named Susie Talbot, who I'd been working on with something else uh, on some, you know, on another project with, and she brought us the book. And now we're working with a company called Votive and a company called Endgame on trying to make it a limited series. So excellent. Yeah. Do you have an idea of like, just curious, cause you know, to, to be in an audience and think to ourselves like, well, if we were doing your job, I think there'd be a little element of like, well, where would it perfectly fit? Like what network what you know where would it stream essentially or where would it live as a limited series I mean it really could I think it could live on Amazon it could live on Hulu it could live on Netflix so is that the next step to kind of go to them or is there something else before like I'm just curious I have no idea how that works I mean right now where what we're really trying to do is find a find a director cool Excellent. That's so great. I love it. And then, oh, I have a lot of actors who listen to the podcast. Do you have any advice for actors? Are you ever part of the casting process for things? Obviously there's the offer only kind of roles, but anybody else, do you have any recommendations or advice? Yeah. I mean, the first thing I would say is when we're casting for a movie and we're casting the supporting roles, the number of tapes that we get that are excellent are unbelievable. You should never feel like you're not doing a good job if you're not getting cast because mm. I can't tell you how many excellent tapes I've seen. Yeah. For one reason or another, they're just not the right person. That's the next helpful. thing I would say is get on casting director's radar. Yeah. Because they're the folks that are going to really be championing you for roles. And then the third thing I would say is I applaud you because I can't imagine how difficult it is. And if you can keep working on your craft, that's incredible. Oh, I love but, that. But I think, I think. Getting on casting directors, readers, I don't think it really helps to cold email companies, production companies, yeah, me too. because they're just like, we get so many emails and it's, you're, you're going to, you have a better, better chance of getting on our radar. If you do a great audition for something that a casting director sends to us. Yeah. Do you have casting directors that you consistently work with or is it, is it sort of, does it vary? Like I know Stephen Vincent, I think worked in Mouthful oh, there. Vincent. He was fantastic. Rebecca Dealey, I like, I think it's wonderful. We work with Stephanie Holbrook, Laura Rosenthal. We've worked with, although I didn't work super closely with her. There's so many great ones. Though. Yeah. The ones in New York, especially it makes me really worked happy. With, worked with, um, and then we also had this casting director named Jillian Samini who worked on Mouthful of Air with us, who cast all the babies and she's uh-huh. um, is a, I was like, I don't recognize that name. Yeah, that's why. Yeah, that sense. she. Um, but she also she's in theater. She's toggling between theater and film, and she did. She cast this the babies in the show called The Ferryman that oh. was on. Broadway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And I she's think been I, I think I remember Mike saying in his interview that it was, it was a little hard with all the babies because there were a lot of babies, a lot you of can, babies, but the little ones, you get them for like 15 minutes. And so there were days when it was like, we just kept like replacing baby after, and it was, the hair didn't match. And the, it was, yeah, so it's, 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 it's almost a joke. Like I remember the first film I was ever cast in was um, a winter's tale with uh, Russell Crowe and Colin Farrell and a bunch of Jennifer Connelly. And I remember I had to carry a baby and there was like moss everywhere on the floor. And before I carried the baby, I think I was carrying like a fake doll for like certain shots. They didn't need to carry a real baby. And I yeah. slipped on the moss and I fell and everyone's like, are you okay? And I was like, you know, I think I was like adrenaline. I was like, it's fine. Everything's fine. And then they gave me the baby and I was like, guys, I didn't care if I fell, but like, can we remove some of this moss so that I, I cannot... I, I will, it's a baby. Like there's just, it's, it's a whole different set when a baby's there sometimes. Right. Excellent. It's a, it's a whole yeah. thing. Yeah. I don't remember how many babies we had on this, that movie. It was a lot. It was sometimes nice to like go to a little area where they were like during break and the energy of like, how many yeah, do you usually have to have on set at any, I mean, that's hard, I guess to say, because it depends on how long the scene is and how what many. we were filming the days, the days when we were filming with the Teddy, which was the, yeah. the older baby. And then the Rachel, the younger baby, that was a, that was a lot of babies because we would need the standbys and we would need the double. Yeah, a lot of standbys. The baby was sick. You had to find another baby. Oh my God. You really couldn't work with them for more than 15 minutes each. So it was like, I had to find a baby who has this weight and this. See, it's a lot of pressure to get the scene done as quickly as possible. Yes. Good to know for people who are creating scripts with babies. Excellent. So, well, my last question I always ask mentors is what is your definition of, of success? That is a very good question. I feel like for me, it changes all the time. Yeah. That's why um, I asked. I would like to say now this is, this is my new thing, which is the definition of success is that every day you spend a good amount of time working on something that matters to you. Mm, I love that. All right, Jenny, thank you so much for your time. I've learned so much from you, so I appreciate it. And yeah, thank you for your time. Yeah, of course. Thank you, Michelle. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you haven't yet, do me a favor, drop a five-star review, follow on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, and find me on Instagram. I'm at at Michelle Simone Miller and at Mentors on the Mic. Share this in your stories. Let me know what you think. Share it with a friend, and I'll see you next time.